Morning, everyone. Please join me as we pray together. Lord, your word says that the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And while it's helpful for us to see that the Bible calls it like it is and straightforwardly communicates a truth, we know that's true because we've all experienced it. We've, we've experienced the pain of a cutting word, an innuendo, a joke, something that was said in jest or something that was said with full rage that we'll never be able to forget. Words that have come out of our mouth that we wish we could take back a million times over, but we can't. They're out there. And, and so, Lord, these things that come from our mouth called words have great power. And so we pray that you would help us to no longer kill relationships and really hurt people with our words, that today you would, from College Park Church, create a group of people who really, really want to honor Jesus with their words. So Lord, help us. This is real, this is practical, this is tough, this is hard. This is where we really live. And oh my, if you could help us here, which we know you can, we could be so much better disciples of yours. So help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. The 19th century preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon was um, standing outside of his auditorium as people were filing out with the traditional greeting after the morning sermon when a woman who was known for complaining began to approach him. He knew her all too well. And as she approached him, she said to him, Pastor Spurgeon, your tie offends me. Well, he grabbed the scissors and he promptly cut it off and handed it to her. Said nothing. And she thought she'd won the battle. Started to walk off with his tie as though somehow she had gotten one over on Spurgeon. To which he said, oh ma'am, wait a minute. She turned and he said, your tongue offends me. And then handed her the scissors. <laughs> See, we all know it to be true that our words have power. James 3 says that the tongue is a fire. It's a restless evil. It's full of deadly poison. And, and we all know this to be true. You can probably tell me of someone... What they said about you years ago, what they wrote about you, what they posted on your Facebook, what they texted you, and, and you'd love to forget what they said, but you never will be able to. Further, I suspect that everyone in this room has said things that just came out of the mouth, and before you could even think they were there, and you wished you could get them back, but you can't. We know the reality of what the tongue and words do. That they have a real consequence, sinful words, on our relationships. They really can kill relationships. And our words can really, really hurt people. We're in the middle of a series called How to Kill Relationships and Irritate People. Just a little sidebar, some of you have asked. Some couple people came up to the book table and they're like, where can we get this book? There's no book like this, okay? It's not. 
<laughs> Just so you know, too, that's not my hair. It never was. And it's not my suit. That's Dale Carnegie with my face on it. That's what that is, okay? So there's no book like that. Not yet, all right? So no book. So in the midst of our series, though, we've been trying to figure out how do we, how do we deal with this fact that we're prone to irritate people and kill relationships. And I've argued that, look, if you want to kill relationships, just do these five things. Be full of yourself. Use anger to get what you want. Live with unresolved conflict. Say whatever you want and never be satisfied. Those are the five things that we've looked at. And so far we've seen this, that the reality of what's going on inside of our hearts as it relates to this killing relationships and irritate people is that being full of ourselves was the first problem. And the solution to that was to remember that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And then we saw that um, uh, the, the way in which our anger manifests itself is we try and get what we want and we try and use anger. And the Bible says that the anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness that God requires. And then last week we saw unresolved conflicts and we're called to resolve problems quickly because if we don't, we will give the devil a foothold, an opportunity. We'll give him room to move that he really shouldn't have. Now today we're looking at the subject of our words, our language, our tongue. And what I hope to do today is to help you prayerfully think through and be motivated to evaluate the impact of your words upon your relationships. Because you see, words don't have to wound words actually can heal, they can bless, they can encourage. That the tongue is actually a powerful tool of evil, but also for good. And this morning I want to give you two buckets to think in. That the tongue can either be a restless evil, just this thing that's just waiting to say something that's hurtful, or the tongue can be a reservoir of encouragement. So you got restless evil or reservoir of encouragement, and here's the deal, every single day that you wake up, every time you open your mouth, you got to decide, am I going to use this mouth as a evil or as an encouragement vehicle? And I just want you waking up tomorrow or going out in the hallway or driving into work with this thought on your mind. God, would you help me today to have my mouth glorify you in new ways? It's so simple. But listen, we need to come back to this simple concept Because the reality is, our words, and specifically our tongue, is more often than not filled with evil, hurtful things than it is encouraging, helpful words. So, James chapter 3. The book of James is all about real religion and its evidences. James wants to know if you're the real deal. And so he talks about speech as an evidence of whether or not you're real or phony. In other words... It's a little hard to believe that a man loves his wife and kids and loves Jesus when he's verbally abusive. It's a little hard. So yes, what you say on Friday and Saturday night has everything to do with what's going on here now. And God doesn't think highly of people who beat up their family with their words and then sing wonderful words, beautiful words. That's not cool to God. It's hard to believe that a woman who's a committed Christian 
can claim that she loves Jesus with all her heart when she uses hateful and hurtful speech with her kids or with her friends. You see, the reality is what James is saying here is that our words are telling and they probably tell us a lot more than what we realize. And that's why James gives us some major warnings about our speech and specifically how we use our tongue. Such a little organ with such power. What does James tell us? We'll look at verse 1. He begins with this. That controlling the tongue, number one, is tough. He begins with an important point. Here's what he says. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So, what's he saying? He's saying this. This is pretty simple. He cautions against wanting to be a teacher because of the reality that you're judged with greater strictness by God and others. In other words, if you talk a lot, you open yourself up for problems. So if you've ever like been sitting there on Sunday morning, and you see what I'm doing up here, and you're like, I think I'd like to do that sometime. What James would say, you don't even know what 8,000 words in 40 minutes can get you. Because 8,000 words in 40 minutes can get you in a lot of trouble. And let me tell you, in 15 years, I've gotten in trouble. Because you say things and you nuance them, and I've, I've gotten in trouble with my own kids before. I've told them, in fact, I have to clear all of my illustrations now. I, I, this was, I, with them, on, uh, in advance, because of one Sunday when I came home, and I thought I was going to be seriously smoked out of the house. My kids were angry, and were sitting around the table. I was like, what's the matter? They're like, you used an illustration on Sunday, and you told the whole church that we're sitting around watching Dragon Tales. Dad, we watched Dragon Tales for six years! Ah! I was like, whoa! <laughs> That's baby shows, you know? Okay, okay, I'm sorry. The reality is the more you talk, the more opinions you offer, the more direction you give, the more discussions you have, the more possibility it is for people to be hurt, to misunderstand you, to be offended, take you the wrong way, or think you're being hypocritical. Every time you open your mouth, the possibility of something going wrong increases. I'm not calling for some new cult, mute Christians. That's not what I'm calling for. How you doing? Mm. I'm not calling for that. Use your words. But the reality is, every time you open your mouth, the possibility goes up for something to go wrong. Verse 2 says that controlling the tongue is tough. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. What's he saying there? He's saying that controlling the tongue is really hard. And if a man or a woman is skilled at disciplining their tongue, it probably means that they're skilled in disciplining the rest of their life. Because the tongue is a hard organ to discipline. Or your words are hard to be able to control. So therefore, the reverse is also true. Show me a man who's got a a, a bad mouth, a woman who runs at the lips. Show me someone who's got loose lips, and I'll show you someone who probably has a loose life. Show me somebody who cannot control what they say, and more than likely, that person has bigger problems as it relates to the control of their heart and their spirit. So, what is James saying? He's saying that typically an uncontrolled tongue is the sign of an uncontrolled life. Don't tell me, oh, it's just my words, I just have a hard time. No, no, enough of that. 
words come from somewhere. We'll talk more on that in a moment. The second thing is that James says that the tongue is powerful and dangerous. Look what he says in verse 3. He uses an illustration. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships. Though they are so large, they're driven by strong winds. They're guided by a very small rudder, the will of the pilot, which the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So what's he saying? He's saying here that the tongue, although it's a small, teeny-weeny part of the body, although your mouth is such a small part of the overall person, don't ever underestimate the power and the potential destruction of your word. Don't minimize the power of something so small. One of the problems that many of us have is that we minimize our words. I just needed to vent. Then you know I was kidding. Come on, I didn't mean that. By the way, you know what we mean when we say that? We mean, I didn't mean to say that out loud. That's what we mean. Or, look, they can handle it. Or, I just tell it like it is. They're really expressions that reveal that we don't know what we're messing with. The Bible tells us the tongue is dangerous. Our words have power. And that's why James uses the illustration of a bit in a horse's mouth and a rudder on a ship to show us that little things can wield enormous influence. The tongue, James tells us, although small, should be dealt with with great caution and care. Do you know that James isn't the only one that tells us this? I mean, the book of Proverbs is filled with warnings about our tongue. Let me give you a couple examples. First one. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than him. Now, this should really resonate with some of you ladies, okay? Because you come home and you, you're trying to tell your husband something, and before he gets the, you get the words out of your mouth, he's like, oh, I got, I, got, I got that all fixed right now. Here's what you need to do. This is what it says. In this moment, he's become a fool and a biblical one. So quote this verse to him, right? So do you see a man who's hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. So if you're quick to talk, quick to give an answer... The Bible says you're a biblical fool. And then, there's another one. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. Whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Meaning, the more you talk, the more that conversation happens, the more that's going on, the more possibility there is for sinful things to take place. Here's another verse in um, uh, Proverbs chapter 17. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. Man, there's a lot of hope here. Here's why. Because if you are like seriously not smart, you're like, oh, I just don't know. And every time I open my mouth, people are like, that's kind of stupid. So here's what you do. Just keep your mouth shut, and people will think you're smart. So just be silent. It's like, mm-hmm. They're like, man, he's got to be seriously thinking about something. What are you thinking? Mm, nah, nah, I don't want to tell you, right? So a man who keeps his mouth shut is considered wise. So all of that to say this. For some of us, the main thought from this morning's message is just this. Talk less. Talk less. Realize that the more you talk... And the more things that come out of your mouth is the more possibility of you sinning. And here's the clue. And people understanding how not smart you really are, right? So Proverbs 17, keep quiet. Here's another one. Uh, Proverbs chapter 21, whoever keeps his mouth 
and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. And then, here's one, sorry ladies, um, it's better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. And all the men, no, just kidding, so. (laughs) Yet the reality is we know that that last verse, all kidding aside, is true, not just for women, but also for men. That Man, if you live in a house with a quarrelsome and fretful person, it's a lot, the Sahara Desert sounds really attractive. Because it's not a fun place to live. Then he goes on in verse 5 and describes that the tongue is destructive far beyond its size. He says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Meaning, it's such a small thing, but its consequences are devastating. It can grow. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. Notice verse 6. This should be underlined in your Bible. This is a scary verse. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Yikes. The NIV says, the tongue is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. And we know this to be true. We've seen it play out way too many times. And that is that our words can be nuclear weapons that bring untold devastation. An unchecked tongue calls for lots of relationship body bags. The little thing in your mouth can create a ton of problems. But here's the deal. The problem with the tongue is not the problem. There's something that's a bigger problem. And that's the third thing about the tongue you need to know. And that is that the real problem are the issues of the heart. Luke chapter 6 and verse 43. Jesus tells us that it's not just the internal, external activities of the mouth. It's not just what we think. He tells us that it actually relates to what we love. It relates to the heart. Look at Luke chapter 6 and verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. The evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. And here's the, here's the stunning verse. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. What's he saying? Our words come from The considerations, the thoughts, the meditations of the heart. So those words, and this is, this is what really breaks us. This is what is so painful about our words, is they just don't come out of anywhere. They just not like floating out there and just like, woo, that just come out. They come out because they're in there. And the pain is, is though even though we didn't mean it, and even though we didn't want to say it, so to speak, we regret it after it comes out, the reality is we know that that was in there, and that's why it came out, because it came out of what was inside. It means that what we think about, what we feel, what we dwell upon, what we're constantly being filled with, those are the things that then come out of our mouth. Paul Tripp has written a book called The War of Words. And in that book he says this, Word problems are always related to heart problems. 
Talking about Luke 6, he says, Jesus' brilliant metaphor reveals that our words are shaped and controlled by the thoughts and motives of our hearts. It's very tempting to blame others. She makes me so angry, or he pushes all my buttons, or to blame the situation around us. I didn't have time to sit down and discuss it calmly, or with four kids in the house all talking at once, a soft answer doesn't work. (laughs) says this, my words reveal the true desires of my heart. Word problems reveal heart problems. So what I want you to understand this morning is that people and circumstances do not cause the words that we say. People and circumstances, my friends, are the triggers that reveal what our hearts are thinking about. The reason that our words kill relationships and the reason that our words come out like they do is because our hearts are desperately wicked. That's why. The problem is not just the tongue. The problem is not just our words. The problem is who we are. We are naturally born sinners. Now that's the bad news. The good news is is that Jesus died for heart problems. And here's the glorious reality of the gospel, which is that people who are separated from God because of their sin... When they realize that and they confess their sin and say, Jesus, come into my life. Let your death become efficient for me. Let your death work for my forgiveness. And then he comes and changes your heart. Guess what? He also changes your mouth. He he changes the way you talk. He changes the tone. He changes the content. He He changes the substance. He changes the motive. Why? Not because he's changed your mouth. He did that by changing your heart. And that's the only thing, he's the only one in all the universe that can do that. So maybe that after hearing a message on pride and then anger and then unresolved conflict, it may be that today God would mercifully, and I was praying this this morning, that he would open the eyes of some of you to realize that the problem with your mouth is that you've never dealt with the cross. You've never said, Lord, I can't. Change what comes out of my mouth because my heart is unchangeable by me. And the beautiful news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the risen Son of God, came and died for sins of the mouth and sins of the heart to make you a new creature. We are naturally born sinners. You don't have to teach your kids to sin with their mouth. When our twins were about four years old, they learned a phrase. It's the phrase, on purpose. They learned it this way when, because they were together from from birth, they always had to share everything, and they'd be around each other, and invariably accidents would happen. Someone would trip over the other one. and So, for instance, like Joseph would come, and when he was four years old, say, Dad, Aiden tripped me. And so we'd say, oh, honey, sure, you just were in the way, and it was an accident. He didn't do it, here it comes, on purpose. So, another day Hayden comes and says, Dad, Joe lost my toy, or he broke my toy. And we say, oh, you know what, I'm sure it was an accident, I'm sure he didn't mean it. Certainly he didn't do it on purpose. So they learned that there were two categories in life. There was like accident, and there was on purpose. And on purpose meant malicious intent. They didn't know what that word was, but it meant like meant to and in your face trying to get back at you. 
Well, one day I happened to hear an over, overhear a conversation between them, a rather heated one, as they were arguing about a toy, and they're fighting back and forth, and, and one of them actually was successful in yanking it out of the other one's hands, and then he ran out of the room, to which the other one said, You're such a purpose boy! <laughs> purpose boy? That didn't even make sense. You know what it is? It's four-year-old swear words. That's what that is. You're a purpose boy. You're on purpose. So they didn't know that I had heard that. We're sitting around a dinner table or somewhere. I don't remember exactly where we were. And one of them said something. And I said, oh, yeah, is that being an on purpose boy? And they're like, oh, dad knows. Knows the secret. (laughs) You don't have to teach your kids that stuff. It's there. It's because of the very nature of their sinful heart. We're natural born sinners. We naturally have a rebellious heart. But the great news is, it doesn't have to be that way. When Jesus comes, he can transform your affections, your desires, and listen to me, he can transform how you talk to people. So, the tongue can be a restless evil. Secondly, it can be a reservoir of encouragement. Proverbs 18.21, in the message, a paraphrase says this, listen, Words kill, words give life, they're either poison or fruit, you choose. Love that. Words kill, words give life, they're either poison or fruit, you choose. And that's what we're faced with every single day. And what I'm hoping is that some of you will leave here today, and tomorrow morning when you wake up, one of the first thoughts in your mind will be, God, would you consecrate my heart and my mouth today? I want to use my words as emblems of grace. I want to use it as a reservoir of encouragement. This bubbling, flowing over composite of of gracious, God-centered words that minister grace and love to other people. I want my mouth to be that kind of reservoir. So the question that would be, all right, so what is that? What exactly is encouragement? And then why should we encourage? There's a couple different words that are used for encouragement. Um, They mean to persuade forward, to call to one's aid, to call alongside. Interestingly, it's the word that's often used to describe, or actually the name of the Holy Spirit, like in John 14, That Jesus says that he will bring another helper, the Holy Spirit, a paraclete that will come alongside. So it means that our words have the flavor of the role of the Holy Spirit. So it doesn't mean that you'll ever be able to replace the Holy Spirit, but it means that our words should have the same kind of helping effect like the Spirit does. So what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, he has many roles, but one of the things that he does is he gives us spiritual energy. He helps us. He aids us. He encourages us. Listen, he empowers us to do God's will. He empowers us to to obey God, to glorify him. His role in our lives is exponential in its effect in that his presence aids us in doing what's right. And my question is this. Do your words do that for other people? Do your words, your nonverbals, your tones, the very content of your words, do they encourage people to be able to do God's will? Or on the contrary, do people have to really work hard at being righteous when they're listening to you? There are some of you who your words are actually a spiritual discipline for other people to try and manage. And in a meeting, getting ready to meet you, they have to pray, God, help me not to gossip. Help me to say the right thing. Give me control with what I say. Help me not to blow up. Help me not to tell them like it is. Lord, help me, help me, help me. And the reality is that your words and your language have the effect on other people that they have to work hard to be righteous when they're around you. And I don't want you to be those kind of people. 
When we go camping and we make a little fire, or in the backyard in our little fire pit, and, and you, you have little sticks that are together and those coals get kind of hot, in order to make that fire um, get larger and, and more expansive, you, you add oxygen to it, right? And the simple way to add oxygen is to get down there and blow on that little, those little embers. And you blow on them. And, and the more you blow, the more you add oxygen, the more flame grows. And, and the more you blow, the hotter they get. And I want you to be that kind of person that you add oxygen, you're like a spiritual bellow. You know those things, those, those, those big things to blow um, uh, oxygen into the fireplace? I want you to be those kind of people rather than being a fire extinguisher. That's what some of you are like. People are trying to be godly, trying to be righteous, trying to use their right words, and you come along and, and your presence is like, shh. They're trying to grow and, and, and you come around and in your small group, everything's going good until you open your mouth and suddenly there's like this giant sucking sound of spiritual oxygen out of the room because he opened his mouth and oh my goodness, now what do we do with this? Through a relational and emotional and verbal hand grenade in the middle of the room. So encouraging words are the kind of words that motivate us and move us towards obedience. They're the kind of words that we use with our kids that help them obey, not just to stop their negative behavior. Kids, teenagers, I'd ask you this. Are you the kind of person that's not just that you don't argue and fight with people, but is your presence like spiritually helpful for others? Because it's not just enough for us not to do bad things. The Bible calls us to actually be part of the solution. The next question is, so why should we encourage others? Well, the first reason is it's commanded. First Thessalonians 4.18, encourage one another. First Thessalonians 5.11, 5.14, all of them say we're to encourage one another. But the other reason is that it's implicit in the fact of what Jesus has done for us. In other words, people who have been forgiven of so much, they've been forgiven of their sin, been given a new mind and a new heart and a new life, they see life through a different lens, and as a result, having been given everything and having been forgiven everything, and even though they know they deserve nothing, how could they not, if they understood the gospel, be radically and ravishingly encouraging to other people? They ought to be. So some of you are like, well... What if you're, like, encouraging to somebody who shouldn't be encouraged? What? And there's some folks who your encouragement needs to be encouragement to redirect. Encouragement doesn't mean not saying hard things. It means you're encouraging people to do the right thing. Some of you might think, well, what about if I compliment someone and they're really full of themselves and I compliment them on that thing and then they get, like, fuller of themselves? I don't want to aid their pride. And, and I would just tell you, if that's your perspective, just a little news flash. Yeah, that's called spiritual judging. In a couple of weeks from now, we're going to look at that. It's like a little moat plank thing in your eye. And that's God's role, not yours. And, in fact, if no one ever encouraged you because they were afraid of you being sinful with it, that'd be a really sad day because you know how sinful you really are. So here's just my advice. You know what? Just go and be encouraging and let God be God and you just do your part. The other reason is not only what God has done for us, but also what he's going to do in the future. Hebrews chapter 10 says, Encourage one another as you see the day approaching. First Thessalonians 4 He says, so we will always be with the Lord. So encourage one another with these words. So there's a reminder that we are to encourage one another to glorify God in a world that is not our home. That this is not what we're living for. That we don't exist just to be able to make much of ourselves. 
So the idea is in the midst of a world filled with pain and difficulty and wrestling with our own sin and disappointment and discouragement, that there ought to be this, this platoon of people, the followers of Jesus, who know that they have been forgiven much and there's a bigger plan and they ought to be just ravishingly radical about their desire to encourage other people. To remind people, look, life is bigger than this and what I see in you, I see the glory of God expressed in you and that's really awesome and really exciting and I want to just honor the Lord for what I see in your life and encourage people and I want you to be the kind of person that when you're walking down the hallway, people are gravitated towards you, not like, oh my word, he's such a fire extinguisher. Finally, the question then becomes, so how do we encourage? Hebrews 10.24 says this, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the draw, the day drawing near. So the Bible links encouragement to stirring one another up in love and good works. It means here that encouragement is speaking, listen, speaking redemptively. That was a helpful phrase that I found this week. Speaking redemptively. It means that the sweetness and the strength of the gospel, the sweetness of grace, the strength of truth, should flavor everything we say. That your mouth, your words are different because your heart is different. And that means that we do this in two ways, that we demonstrate the love of God and we direct people to the grace of God. So we're demonstrating the grace of God by having different words and we're directing people to the grace of God in how we frame our words and what we want them to do. That means that the whole essence of who you are is involved in this wonderful goal in life to point people to a relationship with Jesus and your words are a vital part of that. And the thing I just want you to think about with me is this. Are your children, do they feel like they are being demonstrated the love of God and directed to the grace of God by your words? Your co-workers that you work with, the folks that you hung out with on Friday night, is, is the hangout at that person's backyard, was it distinctly different because of your presence there? Or was it just the same as every other exchange? See, the Bible calls us to be radically different and our words will make us extremely unique in culture. More so than just letting more people in and the line of uh, cars, like we talked about a number of weeks ago, to, to have words that are gracious and loving and encouraging. Listen, you will be the kind of person, a beacon in the community, because of how radically different your words could be compared to the culture in which we live. About a year ago, uh, Pastor Dale and I were traveling together in the Philadelphia area, and uh, our plane was delayed and, um, and I, I feel really bad for, for the folks who have to stand behind the desk in an airport when people's plane are delayed. Because, man, everything, I mean, it's just like the cap comes off, right? And this poor girl at the end of the desk is just getting what for from these people about all these really important things they have to be at. And I, mean, I understand their frustration, but they are giving it to her. And finally, after about an hour and a half, they've let the plane open up and we're walking in. And, you know, they're walking by, kind of giving her the evil eye. And Dale's right in front of me. And just as we start to walk in the plane, he leans across the desk like this, as only Dale can do. Leans across the desk. And, of course, she thought she was going to hear one more word. And he said, just so you know, you're doing a great job today. And she actually, like, stepped backwards. She didn't know what to do. <laughs> the, the grace demonstrated to her, it was It was stunning. And that's what I'm telling you. That's what grace in your words can do. It's a stunning testimony of the reality of your heart and life. So let me ask you this. Do your words do that? Are they redemptive? Do they demonstrate the love of God? 
Do your words direct people to the grace of God? Do your words make a relationship with Jesus attractive? Because the fact of the matter is, your tongue can either be a restless evil or a reservoir of encouragement. And I want you to make no mistake about it. Our words yield a harvest. The question is, what kind of harvest do our words produce? There are no neutral words. They're always producing a harvest. And the question is, what are your words doing? Words have power, my friends, for good and for evil. When I was 17 years old, I remember standing in our kitchen and having my dad hold me as I just cried. Earlier in the day, I had been at a pep rally. I was 17 years old, six foot four basketball player, big game that night. And before the game, they had a pep rally and they had the tube and the smoke and all the players walked out and they were introduced, you know, and John Jenkins comes out. And I came out, Mark Rogup. And most of the crowd cheered, but about five or maybe six booed. And I remember walking out in this spotlight and smoke and hearing six people in the stands boo. I have no idea why. I'm sure I probably did something wrong. I don't know. But what I do remember is the shame of standing there in this spotlight and smoke and hearing people boo. I went home. My dad asked me how my day went. And I told him. And it just, it, it hurt so bad. And I remember him wrapping his arms around me saying to me, son, just so you know, we love you. We are proud of you, and I am so sorry that that happened. Listen, words have power. They can cause great pain, and you probably have a story ten times worse than that. They have pain. They have potential to make great difficulties in relationships, or your words could be filled with the kind of God-glorifying, redemptive, grace-giving flavor that God wants them to be a part of, that your words could be the kind of words that really point people to Jesus, that you could be the kind of people to say, look, I'm going to use my mouth to glorify Christ, not by accident, but by intentionality. To say, I will, Lord, today use my words to encourage people in their desire to seek you. In College Park, I want you to be those kind of people, not only for your relationships, but I want you to be those kind of people because of the glory of God in the world. Father, I pray that you would give us understanding about the words that we use, the tones that we put around our words and the potential pain that we create and that you this moment would begin just to help us understand how we need to grow in our words there are some children who just would love to hear from a mom or a dad I am proud of you way to go there are some who have hurt others so deeply in marriage in relationships Their words have been like arrows that have pierced the hearts of so many people. And I pray, Lord, that right now you would just cause us to realize that can't continue. And Lord, there's others who may realize that their real problem is their heart. And therefore, they need today to run to Jesus. And while we just pause before we go out and talk... 30 seconds from now, you're going to open your mouth again. Could you just, right where you are, just talk to the Lord about what's inside your heart and coming out of your mouth? Maybe you just say, Lord, I, 
confess a mouth that's just not helpful. Maybe you'd say, Lord, I confess words that are absent of encouragement. Maybe you'd say, Lord, confess a cursing heart that's shown up in a cursing mouth. You know, if you need someone to pray with after our service, we'll have some of our counselors up here at the front. They'd love just to be able to have a word of prayer with you. And if you're a first-time visitor, I want to remind you about the Coffee Talk tent. It's a place for us to get to know you. I'll be there in a few moments and would love to be able to meet you. Just hear what God's doing in your life. Church, just be reminded as we leave, you're going to open your mouth. The question is, what will come out, evil or encouragement? And so, Lord, help us, even in this building, And in this next week, to have lives that reflect the beauty and the glory of Jesus through our words and our tongue. We ask this in Jesus' name.